James chapter 4 tonight. James chapter 4. As Brian was sharing those songs tonight, I was reminded of a verse in Psalms that goes along with our passage tonight and also goes along with the songs that we sang tonight. Psalm 145, verse 14. The psalmist writes, The Lord supports all who fall and lifts up all who are discouraged. That's a great verse. He supports all who fall and lifts up all who are discouraged. Psalm 145, verse 14. Throughout our study of the book of James, here lately we've been talking about conflict. Uh, in fact, in James chapter 4, verse 1, James even asks the question, where does conflict come from? All of you in conflict with yourselves and each other. Well, it really starts back in chapter 3 where we talked about the tongue and the right use of our speech and our language and how many times if we're not speaking properly and we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit, we can cause a lot of conflict into our lives. So James says, be careful how we speak. Then in James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, he also says, be careful by what wisdom you walk by or live by. For the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of God can bring harmony to relationships, but the wisdom of the world can bring conflict and divisiveness and strife. And then last week in chapter 4, we began to look at the fact that many times our outward conflicts are caused by inward conflicts. That we truly have not come to a point in our life where we are totally satisfied, totally gratified, totally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we are looking for something in this world, something outside of Jesus to gratify and satisfy us. And God says we will always be churning ourselves up if we're looking for anyone to fulfill us totally other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it can lead to conflict. In fact, in James chapter 4 verse 4, he uses a very strong word. He calls us adulterers because in a sense spiritually, when we come to Christ, we are married to Christ. And in a sense, he's saying that when you and I try to find our fulfillment outside of Jesus Christ, in a sense, we are committing spiritual adultery. We are saying Jesus uh you know, being married to you is nice and everything, but, but I need this or I need that in order to find my true fulfillment and satisfaction and gratification. And so there have been times, I believe, in all of our lives as Christians where we, we thought that satisfaction, fulfillment, and gratification was out there in something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe we were pulled away from Christ and we drifted away from Christ. How do we get back? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us that God always welcomes us back, and I'm so thankful for that, that he is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the thousandth chance, and I tell folks every day, as long as you and I have breath in our body, well, I believe we can come back to God. And, and probably there are many in this room, you could echo that same sentiment that there was a time in your life where you knew God, but you drifted away from God for whatever reason, and you have come back to God. What were the steps? that you and I had to sort of start down that path back to God. Because let's face it, when, when you and I are, in a sense, God wants us to go down this path and we begin to walk down another path, if we're going to get back on the path with God, we've got to sort of retrace our steps and go back and find our way back to God. And James is simply picking it up in James chapter 4 verse 7 by saying, okay, if there was a time in my life where I 
drifted away from God, where I walked away from God, where I tried to find my fulfillment and gratification and satisfaction in something or someone else, how do I get back? And as I said earlier tonight, this message tonight may not be for you where you're at right now in your relationship with God, but it certainly can be a message that encourages you to encourage somebody else because all of us probably run into people a lot in our lives. Either they're believers in Jesus Christ or maybe even they're not believers and they believe that they've been too bad they've gone too far they've done too many you know wrong things they've made too many mistakes in their life to ever come back that there are no steps back to God and thank God through his mercy and grace there is always a way back to God my friends always a way back and we need to share that message with people today yes In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with the gal who said that she felt like she had come to a point where she had been too far away from God. And I looked at her and said, you're never too far away from God. God will always allow you to come back. So notice James starts out in verse 7 by saying, so submit to God. That's really where it starts. The word submit is a military term. It was a term used in the original language that the Bible was written that really emphasizes the fact that like a soldier places themselves under the authority of their commander-in-chief that you and I as Christians, if we're going to get back to God, it all starts with that very basic yet very profound principle of submitting to God, of placing ourselves once again under his authority. You see, as Christians, the hope is that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we take ourselves off the throne of our life, we stop driving the car, we stop calling the shots, and we put Christ on the throne. But, but we all know that there are times in our life where we take Christ off the throne and we put ourselves back and we begin to run our life and we begin to call the shots and we begin to say, God, this is the way I want to go. And again, we may know that God wants us to do something or go somewhere. It's not a matter of not knowing what God's will is at all here. It's a matter of submitting to it. It's a matter of, again, that inward conflict not only is caused by the inward conflict of the, of the flesh battling with the Spirit of God, but many times the conflict is caused because we're wrestling with God. We know God wants us to go down this road and we don't want to go. Or we know God wants us to do this and we don't want to do it. And so we end up in a sense in a wrestling match with God because we're not at this point where we're willing to say, okay, God, I surrender. I'm taking myself off the throne of my life. I'm putting you back on the throne. You're calling the shots from here on out. Submit to God. And that is the first step in a sense of what we call repentance. That's the first step of getting back to God. So even though the word repentance is never used in this passage of scripture we're going to look at tonight, it's all about repentance. Because the word repentance simply means I'm going in one direction and I'm turning around now because of what God's doing in my life and I'm going another direction. You see, regret which many times we have when we make wrong decisions or we sin or whatever. Regret is simply an emotional uh, thing that we do. It's an emotional tool. But repentance is more than just an emotion. It's an action. 
It's saying, I'm going down this way, and now I'm going to change my life because I've changed my mind, and I'm going down this way. Prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 16, great example. He left his father's house. He went out. He lived his life the way he wanted to. He took God off the throne of his life. He says, I'm calling the shots now, did whatever he wanted to do. But there came a point when the pain and consequences began to bear upon him that he said, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? And God got a hold of his life and he turned his life around and he went back to his father who I believe is a great picture of our heavenly father who gladly welcomed him back because there's always a way back with God and it starts with submitting to God, with placing ourselves under his authority. You see, all human beings, when God created us, he created us to be led. That's why in the Bible, one of the metaphors for the Christian is a sheep because sheep have to have a shepherd sheep do not make it on their own they need a shepherd and you and I as Christians not only need to come to a point where we acknowledge that we need God for salvation for the forgiveness of sins but that we need God every day and that we need God to be our shepherd to guide us to lead us to provide for us and we are primarily looking to him That's what submitting to God is all about. Created to be led. Now, again, like sheep, we know that sheep go astray an awful lot. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, let me share this verse with you. Peter writes, For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. You were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's what James is talking about in this passage, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. How do we turn back? How do we get back to God? We start by submitting to God. I I don't know what you're wrestling with right now in your life, what you're dealing with. Like Brian said, what, what life is bringing your way. But I've got to believe that there's some folks here tonight that here's where... Here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We could talk about conflict and all of this, but what it really comes down to is you're wrestling with God when it really comes down to it. You know what God wants you to do. You know the direction God wants you to take. You know the path God wants you to take. And and you just need that, that sort of prodding and encouragement to just submit to God. Just surrender to God and let God be back on that throne and let him continue to call the shots of your life. Be that shepherd who acknowledges I need, or be that sheep that acknowledges I need my shepherd. I need to submit to him. A lot of people in the Bible wrestled with God, but they all lost. And you and I can wrestle with God. I Some of you know this story, and I'm not going to take time for a personal testimony tonight, but I believe that God was calling me to be a pastor when I was 12 years old. I did not surrender to that call till I was like 21 or 22 years old. For 10 years of my life, I did not surrender. I did not submit. I'm like, God, I I don't want to be a pastor, you know, whatever. And yet I knew that's what God wanted me to do. And I had no peace in my life. I had no rest in my soul until the day I said, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. And it was almost like a weight, as we've talked, a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And then I started thinking, why didn't I do this earlier? You know, 
because I was carrying around this weight, if you will, of disobedience to the Lord, knowing what the Lord wanted me to do, but not submitting or surrendering to the Lord. Psalm 139 talks about the fact that God created us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So everything that he's asking us, everything he's calling us to do, we've talked about this in the mind before, is a uniquely well-fitted responsibility. God knows who we are. God knows me inside and out. God knows you inside and out. That's why we can trust him and surrender our lives to him and submit our lives to him because he's the Lord. He knows us. And so it's... The logical step that you and I as Christians should take, notice the next one. When we get serious about our relationship with God and we begin to take steps back to God, there's a a positive and a negative sort of polar opposite. Because as we surrender and submit to God, notice the next one also in that verse is, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's been a lot of books written on the whole subject of spiritual warfare and everything else, can I tell you from a biblical point of view, the Bible makes it very simple. The Bible doesn't say I need 50 steps in order to conquer the devil in my life. I don't need to do this, 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 and this. I need to do one thing. I need to resist the devil and he will flee. And the word resist simply means to stand up against The devil. Just to take a stand against the devil. To resist what he's trying to do in my life. And it's obviously going to be much easier to resist what the devil is trying to do in my life if I'm surrendering and submitting to my Lord. And God wants me to resist. Listen, if I couldn't surrender to God, God wouldn't command me to surrender. In fact, in verses 7 through 10, there are 10 imperatives here tonight in this. 10 commands. And God is not suggesting these things. He's telling us these are things that we must do, especially if we want to get back to him and really sense the closeness and and the presence of God in our lives. You and I all know that there's been times in our life where we've felt closer to God and been closer to God. God here in verses 7 through 12 give us a prescription of how do we regain that closeness? How do we regain that intimacy? How do we feel close to God? How do we know we're close to God and truly experience his presence throughout each moment of the day? Surrendering to God and resisting the devil. Very interestingly, the word resist in the English language or in the Greek language is the same word where we get our word antihistamine from today. So think about that. The next time the devil bothers you, antihistamine, the devil, you know, resist him. And the Bible promises. Notice the Bible says if we will just resist him, he will flee from us. Why? Because when you and I resist We cannot resist the devil in our own power, in our own strength. We are resisting the devil in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are resisting the devil in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, I don't care who we are as Christians, we can be the lowliest Christian on earth. Every Christian, according to James 4, 7, has the power through Christ to resist the devil and make him flee. Resist the devil. And he will flee. How does the devil play on us? Well, the evil one's strategy is always to distort and discredit our Lord. He tries to convince us that our Lord is not reliable. That he won't be there when we need him. 
that he's not generous, that he won't supply our needs, that he's not loving, we're not good enough, not important enough for him to love us, that God is not satisfying, that God is boring, unfulfilling, cold, and impersonal, that God is not caring, he has more important things to do, we're not worthy of his care, and he's not available when we need him, we can't count on him. These are the ways that the devil, because the devil ultimately is going to attack the character of God. That's how he tries to come between us and God. And God simply says, resist him. I mean, he go all the way back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden. The very first time Satan shows up to tempt Adam and Eve, what was he doing? He was twisting the word of God and he was attacking the character of God. And he hasn't changed his modus operandi for millennia. You go to the temptation of Jesus in the New Testament. Guess what he does there? He twists the word of God and he attacks the character of God. Even when he tempts the son of God, he does not change. That's what he does. And you and I can resist him and allow him to flee. We resist him by being firm in the faith, by believing in what God says and not listening to the devil. Not giving the devil a foothold. When the devil begins to speak into our ear, the devil, the Bible says in John 8, 44, is the father of lies. In fact, that's all he can do is lie. And when Satan begins to throw his lies into our life and into our mind, we need to resist him and push those lies out and saturate our minds with the truth of God's word. And when we resist him, he'll flee. He'll flee, the Bible said. You see, you don't need some kind of magic formula in order to defeat the devil. You don't need to go through a 12-step process to defeat the devil. According to James 4, 7, all you and I as Christians need to do, and every Christian has the power within them to do it, is to resist and he'll flee. That's how we can get back to God. By stopping the devil's work in our life and standing up to him. In fact, we have a minute here to do this. Go back to the book of Ephesians real quick. To Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day, which I believe is just talking about the day that the devil attacks us, and having done everything to stand. You see, God doesn't want us to attack the devil. God just simply wants us to stand and resist him when he attacks and not to allow him a foothold into our life. Resist the devil and he will flee. Back to James chapter 4 verse 8. The next step back to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that. You see, when you and I feel like we're not close to God anymore and we're not experiencing his presence in our life, it's not because God has moved away from us. It's because we have moved away from God. And all we have to do is repent We have to surrender to God. We have to submit to our Lord and place ourselves under his authority. And we have to resist the work of the devil in our life. And then we begin to draw near to God. And we begin to get close to God again. Because again, no matter how far we've drifted away from God, no matter what we've done, no matter how many steps we've taken away from God, there's always a way back to God. And it simply starts with verse 7, submitting to God. 
and beginning to resist the devil in my life and beginning to draw near a God. It's a one-step process at a time, but we slowly not only get back to where we are, but here's the cool thing with God. God not only can get us back to where we were before we departed down our own road, but he can take us further with him than we've ever been before. That's the God of grace and mercy that we have here in the Bible. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you and I lose sight of God, it's not long before we lose sight of everything else in our life. When God is so distant, when God is so far, everything in our life gets cloudy. The way everything comes into clarity in our lives as Christians is when we're walking near to God. And when God and us are just, we're right there. When you see in the Bible that people are walking even with Christ when he was here on earth from a distance, trouble was always around the corner. Let's take Peter, for example. The Bible says that Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times a night. Peter was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'll never deny you, Lord. And then the Bible says a little bit later, Peter kept his distance. He was walking far away from Jesus. He, he didn't want to get too close because things were starting to ratchet up and and the arrest had happened and it didn't look good for Jesus. So Peter kept his distance. And I think there's something very important about even the physical proximity of Peter to Jesus to his betrayal. Because you and I can't follow Jesus from a distance. That's where a sheep needs to be close to their shepherd. And we need to stay close to God. And when you and I draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Now here's the thing. The closer we get to God then, here's something else that happens. A byproduct of that closeness as we become much more sensitive to sin. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You see, when we get close to God, we begin to see ourselves for who we really are and what, what God needs to touch in my life and, and what things need to change in my life. And the only way that I can truly see what needs to happen in my life is when I walk in the light. Even John says, when we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with the other, meaning us and God. And God wants us as children of light to walk in the light. So notice as we get closer to God, notice what verse 8 says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded. Because the closer that we get to God, the more we see ourselves for who we are and the sin that is in our life that it is so destructive that we need to turn over to God. Throughout the Bible, every time you see somebody getting close to the presence of God, you see the sensitivity of sin going way up. Take Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. He, he was transported to the very presence of God, the seraphim of God. The angelic creatures were all around. They were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is like, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Lord, what do I do? And, and the Bible says that God allowed an angel to go with a coal from the altar and to touch his lips and to, to cleanse him and to purify him. And immediately Isaiah the prophet says, Lord, here I am. Send me because the Lord had said before, who, who's going to go for us? Who can I send? Who can I get to minister? Who can I get to serve? And Isaiah's like, I'll go. I'll go. 
because he was in the presence of God, he saw himself, but he also saw in the presence of God his own sin, but he also saw God's ability to be able to cleanse and forgive and purify and for his grace and mercy to be poured out so that he could start all over again and he could be used. Look at Paul. Paul was on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ in all of his glory appears to Paul in this bright light that literally blinds Paul. What's Paul say? Lord, what will you have me to do after he figured out who he was? Because he saw himself and how wrong he had been for all those years in persecuting the church and in not believing that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, the Son of God. And when we get into the presence of God, we see who we really are. And God wants us to be contrite. He, he doesn't want us to joke about sin. When you and I are near to God, sin is not a laughing matter. It's not something to joke about. It's not something to kid about. It's something to deal with and allow God to deal with, to purify and cleanse us if we want to stay near to God. Because a holy God can have no fellowship with one who's walking in sin and disobedience. So notice in verse 9, he says, grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. And this isn't a contradiction of verses like in Nehemiah where the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. But that's a joy that comes from obedience. But there comes a time when we're walking away from God and when we're living in sin and when we're living in disobedience where we as Christians should be broken over it. Instead of making excuses for it, instead of blaming it on somebody else, instead of making jokes about it and making light of it, God says, if you want to truly walk with me, you got to be contrite. You see? you got to take sin seriously. Jesus took sin so seriously that he told his followers that if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. He wasn't literally saying we cut off our hand. He's just simply saying that there are times in our life where sin needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with so seriously. I mean, God thought so much of how serious sin was that the remedy for sin was that God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, humbled himself as a human being, allowed those that he created to murder him and hang on a cross and die. That's how serious God takes sin. So when God looks at his children and he sees that we're making light of something that cost Jesus Christ his very life, God doesn't appreciate that. God feels like we're not showing a proper appreciation and respect for for sin and how serious it is and how we need to deal with it. That's what he's talking about here. No, God doesn't want us as Christians to spend all of our days mourning and grieving and weeping, but there does come moments in our life where you and I have walked away from God and where we have, we have sinned and we have disobeyed, and, and God wants to see some contrition. God wants to see that it moves me enough that I broke the heart of God that somehow I'm brokenhearted about it. And it drives me back to God. Because notice in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, there's a time where if we're willing to humble ourselves before the Lord, God will lift us up. He really will. But it takes us acknowledging who he is and who we're not. And as we said last week, being a humble person is not being negative about myself. 
It's not putting myself down. It's having such a high and lofty view of God that no one or nothing else can ever capture my focus. And when I put God in the proper place he should fill in my life, then I know what place I should be in my life. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you and lift you up. There's so many verses we could talk about with humility. I just want to take a couple here tonight. I want you to go back to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 14. And see how important this principle is. You see, according to God, the way up is down. Just the opposite of what we think. That's the way it is in God's economy. In Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says, Then when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, and the first thing I thought about is, you know what? Jesus watches what we do. He even on earth, he noticed how people behaved. He noticed how they acted. He noticed how they scrambled for the places of honor. And so he told them a parable. He said to them in Luke chapter 14, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place. Then ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And by the way, the Bible says that God wants us to humble ourselves, not wait for him to have to humble us. And can I just say in my life that the times in my life where, I, where God had to humble me, I wish I would have humbled myself before that happened. Humble yourself, God says, and I'll lift you up. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a Pharisee, the religious leader of Israel, and the other a tax collector, a despised sinner in Jesus' day. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Guess what? I've been guilty of that at times, where I looked at others and began, instead of keeping God as my standard, I started looking around at other people as my standard and saying, well, God, compared to them, I'm doing pretty good. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, those extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, however, stood afar off and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Same principle. This principle runs throughout the Bible. And that's exactly what James is picking up on in James chapter 4, verse 10. If we'll just humble ourselves before God, if we'll just acknowledge and confess, 
You see, the Bible teaches that if we confess our sins and forsake them, we'll find mercy. But if we try to cover up our transgression, we will not prosper. Proverbs 28, verse 13. In fact, here's the verse. Let me quote it to you correctly. The one who covers his transgression will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. I've always said, I believe that our sin is more pardonable to God than the excuses we use to cover them up. God is a God of pardon. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness and grace. And all God asks is that we own up to it, that we confess it, that we forsake it. And there's always a way back to God. But not when we're trying to pretend like everything's okay. Not in our pride when we're not willing to admit and acknowledge we made a mistake. It's only when we humble ourselves before the Lord that God will begin to lift us back up. And when you and I take our proper place with God and give God his proper place in our lives, then we won't be so easy to look at others and to criticize them as well. Look at verse 11 back in James chapter 4. Where in the context he says, do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. He who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but it's judge. And there is only one who is a lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? And he's simply saying... When you and I give God his proper place in our life and we find our proper place, we know our proper place isn't to to stand in judgment on other people as far as defining their life. In fact, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's a little matter to me what other people think of me and even what I think of myself because he said... We're not perfect judges even of ourselves. We either give ourselves too much benefit of the doubt or not enough. Paul says, I'm going to leave my final evaluation to the Lord. Because one day, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, God is going to uncover all hidden motives, all the intentions of people's hearts, and everything's going to be laid out there, and God's going to have it all laid out on the table and be able to make a perfect judgment, a perfect evaluation. You and I can't make A perfect evaluation because we're only seeing what's above the surface. We're not seeing what's below the surface. Only God can see that. And so God says, let's not put ourselves in the place of God. If we truly are submitting to God and surrendering to God and we know our proper place and we know our proper place isn't to sit in judgment of others. That's God's place, not ours. I want to close with a really neat story out of the Old Testament. I want you to find the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 33. 2 Chronicles, chapter 33. I know that's a book you guys read all the time, right? Just like me. Where in the world is 2 Chronicles? Well, if you go back towards the beginning of the Old Testament, there's 1 and 2 Samuel, then there's 1 and 2 Kings, and then there's 1 and 2 Chronicles. I know that might not help, but... And like if you're at Psalms and all of that, go left. Second Chronicles isn't far away. We've been talking about the way back to God. And how no matter what we've done, how far we've went away, no matter how many steps we've taken away from God, there's always a way back to God. It begins with surrendering to God, resisting the devil's work in my life. 
humbling myself before God, grieving and contrition over my sin. And probably one of the best examples of how someone could live a life ungodly and God would welcome him back was one of the kings of Israel himself, a man by the name of Manasseh in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I want to read this to you tonight. This is amazing. If you never heard of Manasseh, you will after tonight. Notice in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 45 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and committed the same horrible sins practiced by the nations whom the Lord drove out ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He set up altars for the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the stars in the sky and worshipped them. He built altars in the Lord's temple about which the Lord had said, Jerusalem will be my permanent home. In the two courtyards of the Lord's temple, he built altars for all the stars in the sky. He passed his sons through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. You get that? He committed child sacrifice of his own children. He practiced divination, omen reading, and sorcery. He set up a ritual pit to conjure up underworld spirits and appointed magicians to supervise it. He did a great amount of evil in the sight of the Lord and angered him. He put an idolatrous image he had made in God's temple about which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will be my permanent home. I will not make Israel again leave the land I gave to their ancestors, provided that they carefully obey all I commanded them, the whole law, the rules, the regulations given to Moses. But Manasseh misled the people of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem so that they sinned more than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed ahead of the Israelites. You're getting the picture, right? Bad guy. Done a lot of evil. King of Israel, king of Judah, and not only did evil himself and his own family, but led the whole nation into rebellion against God. If there was ever a guy in the Bible that we would say, he crossed the line, he's went too far, he did too many things, there is no way back to God for Manasseh, there is no way God's going to give him a second chance, let's read on, verse 10. The Lord confronted Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. They seized Manasseh and put hooks in his nose. Does that sound fun? Literally, they were leading him like a bull away to Babylon. In his pain, Manasseh asked the Lord, his God, for mercy and truly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to the Lord, verse 13, the Lord responded to him and answered favorably his cry for mercy. The Lord brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh realized that the Lord is the true God. What a God. After all that Manasseh had done, how Manasseh had lived his life basically saying, God... You're no God. You don't even exist. I'm going to live as if you don't exist. And I'm going to lead this whole nation in rebellion against you. And yet, in his pain, because of the consequences of his sin, he looked up to heaven and he says, God, be merciful. And God was merciful even to Manasseh. 
In fact, after this, verse 14, Manasseh built up the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of the Gihon in the valley to the entrance of the fish gate. He made it higher. He placed army officers in all the fortified cities in Judah. He removed the foreign gods and images from the Lord's temple and all the altars he had built on the hill of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. You see, he meant business. He was grieving. He was mourning. He was contrite. It wasn't just, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done because I'm paying the hard consequences. It's, Lord, I've truly changed my heart and I'm changing the direction of my life. And God was all over it. The Bible says in verse 16, he erected the altar of the Lord and offered it on peace offerings and thanks offerings. And he told the people of Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. And for the rest of Manasseh's reign, the Lord God, was once again in his proper place in the nation of Judah. A hard lesson. But Manasseh is a great biblical illustration of one who had walked away from God all his life, had done such evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet all he needed to do was say, Lord, I'm ready to take that step back. I'm ready to come back to you. I'm ready to start all over again. Can we start over again, Lord? And the Lord said, yeah, Manasseh. We can start over again. Let's get back to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that God used Manasseh. As wicked as he once was, God used Manasseh to positively impact other people. You and I may be in this room tonight, and there may be a time in our life where we thought we were so far from God that not only would God not welcome me back, but what could I ever do for God? And we have seen how God works in people's lives when we surrender and submit our lives to him. And maybe there's somebody in your life that you need to remind about this tonight, that you need to take the principles of James 4, 7 through 12 too, and say, look, this is what the Bible says. God will welcome you back. Here are the steps and encourage them to come back to God because God is there just waiting for them to repent and to make that turn. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your unbelievable mercy and grace and forgiveness. Thank you for the fact, Lord, that it doesn't matter what we've done, how far we've went off the path with you, that you are always there, Lord, to welcome us back, to turn us back, to get us back on the right path, and to live a life, Lord, that not only is pleasing to you, but a life, Lord, that can make a positive difference in other people's lives. Lord, may this message just begin to settle into our hearts and minds tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.